You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War. On this episode of our Spanish Civil War interview series, I was joined by Jess McIver, a PhD researcher, to discuss the portrayal of women fighters during the Spanish Civil War. One of the really interesting pieces of the story of the Civil War is how it interacted with the views of the different groups around what they felt Spanish society was and should be. The presence of women within militia units early in the conflict gave this ideological disagreement a greater urgency and focus. Jess also mentioned several excellent authors throughout the interview, which you can find linked to on the website over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash interviews. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today, I'm joined by Jessica McIver, a PhD researcher focusing on photographic narratives of women's militancy in the 20th century Ireland and Spain. Obviously, the and Spain will be our focus for today. Ms. McIver, how's it going today? Uh, today has been a pretty good day. I've just been focusing on doing some research and doing some reading. Um, yeah, kind of just looking up some stuff on the Casa General. So yeah, quite relevant to us today. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So uh, we're here to talk about, you know, women's militancy during the Spanish Civil War. And was there a precedent within Spanish culture for these women to join militia units and take a more active role in combat? You know, were women sort of at the front or at the barricades maybe during earlier worker strikes and revolutionary activities or was what happened in 1936 a new phenomenon? Uh, so it's a really interesting question, and I'm just going to break it down into two. Uh, the first bit is talking about precedence because it's really interesting when we look at Republican propaganda, there was this real effort to actually create this idea of a legacy of women's militancy. So what we kind of have is there is kind of four key figures who we really see in that legacy. Uh, Agostina de Aragón, Aida, Aida La Fuente, y, and then uh, Lina Odena, who is a very well-known Republican militia woman. So yeah, just focusing on Agostina of Aragón first, uh, she's actually, you know, this very heroic figure from the Peninsula War uh, in the 1800s. Uh, she's referred to as the Spanish Joan of Arc. Uh, she's known for manning a cannon at the siege of Zaragoza against the French after the Spanish fled. And, you know, her, she's very much seen as this very heroic figure. There's a really iconic painting of her by, I think it's Goya. But she was really well emphasised within Republican propaganda as this figure of, we are established as this, like, idea of a woman on the barricade. You then uh, see this discussion with Mariana Pineda as a different form of militancy. Uh, she was a Spanish liberalist. She was involved in resistance to the Spanish King Fernando VII and she was accused of a conspiracy after a flag was, was discovered in her house that had equality, freedom and law embroidered on it. And she was put on trial and the judges were like, well, if you tell us about the people who are involved in this resistance network, we will set you free. And she very publicly refused to do that. 
and was executed and the flag was burned in front of her. So she is the sort of second figure in this idea, in this construction of, of a female legacy. And then the third figure, who also works into the second half of the question when we talk about the worker strikes, is Aida La Fuente, who is a communist heroine from uh, Asturias. And she's really well known for taking part in the 1934 um, uh, worker strikes in Oviedo. And she's a really key figure within that movement. Um, you know, she took part in the fighting in the Viejo under the Rebels uh, Workers' Alliance. Uh, she was involved both in active combat, so we can really see that as a precursor to the Republican militia women, uh, but she was also involved in ancillary aid and auxiliary aid. She died after fighting government soldiers who were sent to uh, quell the rebellion at the time, and she stayed behind to give others time to flee. And she's very much framed as this martyr figure. Um, so you've got that as a, I think those three figures are really key examples of how the Republic constructed this idea of a, um, yeah, of, mm, a legacy of militant women. Um, and then obviously you then had figures such as Lino Odena, who were then very much turned into these martyr figures during the war itself. Uh, interesting. I, I did not know about the the woman in Asturias, um, even though I've I've done some research and some some I guess writing uh, for the podcast about it. Yeah, um, I think there's a really good there's a really good book on her um, by Brian B D Bunk. Uh, I think there's also an article as well. But yeah, she's a really fascinating figure. She's in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a precursor to Lino Odena and kind of that model of the Republican militia woman, uh, particularly as well, I would say, in how she, in the iconography of Republican militia women and kind of, though I think there was one very famous militia woman during the war, uh, Rosaria, Rosario La, uh, the Dynamiter. Uh, who and the brigade she was in was the Lina was the Aida La Fuente battalion, I do believe. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like this real. There's a, a, there's a I think there's a lot of crossover between 1934 and 1936, but yeah, she's a really fascinating figure. Interesting. Uh, so, do we know sort of the reaction of other members of the units that these women volunteered into? Because my understanding is that they often volunteered into you know, units with men, like they weren't all like women units or anything. Yeah, no, um, very much the militias at the start were very mixed. Um, and this was true both of Spanish militias and actually of international brigades. Um, so it would actually, there was a lot, there was uh, evidence of mixed gender brigades across the whole scope of it. Uh, but it was very, it was actually, it's very varied. And it really depended on the makeup of the militia. Um, if the women were, a lot of uh, many women, you know, were already politically active and were uh, actually some of them were, you know, going out to the front with their partners or their family members. So I think that was another element of it in how they were treated. But, and it's actually, I think, it, the 
treatment differs on whether the women themselves were actively involved in combat or if they were staying more on the auxiliary side of things and working, I suppose we can say, more in the rear guard of the militia. Um, but so it's really difficult to say if there's a universal experience, but we can kind of break it down into three different categories. Um, so the first is this, this kind of solidarity and camaraderie, which the, and it was kind of, I suppose that is the ideal of the Republican militia, is this sense of, uh, particularly I suppose within anarchist uh, militias, is a kind of sense of breaking down of gender and hierarchy and kind of working as a group. Um, there's a really fantastic quote by a, a Catalan anarchist militiawoman, Conchita Perez Collado, uh, which says, the group, the group that went, we went as a man, we went not as soldiers because we did not consider ourselves soldiers, but as a group, nine men and one woman. So that was kind of re-emphasizing that sense of shared solidarity and camaraderie. Um, but that was not the you know, universal experience. Uh, you had a lot of groups that were a lot more reluctant to have women take on equal roles and to be involved in the same degree as the men. Um, who were very much, I suppose, confronting these traditional ideas of um, gendered norms and gendered standards within Spain, uh, which obviously the women on the front lines was a large contradiction of this. Um, there's a really famous story again with a group, uh, which is a it was a militia from BOM, which was the uh, work, United Marxist Workers Party. And this was led by uh, Mika Echebere, who was actually one of the few women who led the militia group. Um, she's, she's another fascinating character. She has a biography, that she, an autobiography that she wrote, and it's really, really fascinating. Um, but she actually described how a group, these two militia women came up to her and her, to her group and said, we want to join you. And originally, originally they were very reluctant to have them join the column uh, until the two girls said, we want to join your column because you allow equal participation and you don't differentiate between uh, men and women in terms of who can fight. So I think that's a really clear indication that there is no yeah, uniform experience going on between these groups. Uh, there's also uh, apparently one of the militia women who tried to join that group said, I didn't come to the front to die with a dishwasher in my hand, with a dishwasher cloth in my hand, <laughs> uh, which, you know, I think really sums up um, this kind of, I suppose, clashing ideologies within the groups. Um, but, you know, then again, we also have the third experience, which is really discussed and touched upon by Mary Nash, who talks about how, you know, a lot of women were sexually harassed by their but with by other male by other militiamen at the front in their columns uh how they were really denigrated and treated very badly so i think yeah there's a lot of variation going on between these groups i guess it would be kind of disappointing if you're one of these women and you know your beliefs are are, are against these traditional gender roles and you end up you know volunteering you end up going to the front and you end up put back in those same gender roles that you know you're in some ways fighting against yeah absolutely and i think it was i think it's, it was quite a big issue 
just I think generally within the Republic was this I suppose conflict between gender and how that interacted with uh, anarchism, how it interacted with communism, socialism, Marxism. I mean, when we look at groups like Mujeres Libres, you know, they were specifically set up to ask that question and ask, okay, how can anarchist women actually dismantle this? And how can we change what's going on? How can we ensure that anarchism doesn't stop at the front door? So yeah, it's a really, it's definitely something that is, yeah, very pertinent to the militia women's experiences. And it was, yeah, I kind of is, I suppose speaks to the idea of how we kind of romanticize this figure and how the um, truth of their experiences is a lot more both diverse and yeah, different than how we imagine it. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So after uh, a pretty short while, a few months, uh, the Republican leaders start pressuring women away from the fighting. Uh, Were there reasons for this? Or was it just a desire to kind of return things back to normal after what had been a very chaotic uh, few months? Yeah, so yeah, we do have uh, the first order is I think in September 1936. So there was actually multiple orders to withdraw from the front um, from I think the final final order was in March 1937. Um, And you know, this was quite inconsistent and a lot of women didn't actually end up withdrawing from the front um but yeah there was I think yes both this desire to kind of have women come back into I suppose more normative roles of women during conflict which kind of focused on political organization and uh taking over men's jobs in the factories kind of the similar experiences to what went on in uh, you know, Britain and France during World War One, but uh, there was also this desire to um, militarize the ar- the armed forces and kind of bring them into a more standardized hierarchical army, uh, as opposed to the militias, which did then mean that 
women were didn't really have a place within that hierarchy in that order. Um, there was also the reason of the nationalist response, which was extremely negative, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, you know, the nationalists really ridiculed the Republic for having women be on the fronts and it was taken on an attack on Republican, it was taken as an attack rather on Republican masculinity. So I think that was another reason which would add on to it. Uh, but I think the militarization and yeah, the, the, the reorganization of the uh, militias into a, armed, a singular armed force, I think was quite a big, quite a big rationalization for this. So and when we look at how these women are portrayed in Republican newspapers, Republican propaganda, as they're trying to, you know, maintain support for the war effort, was there a similar shift, like maybe away from being portrayed as this sort of militant heroine to something more on the home front? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so early on, we really see this glorification of the militia woman figure. Uh, we see them very much as these glamorous, um, modern combatants. Um, um, and, you know, we are, there's obviously huge amounts of coverage of them within the national press and within propaganda, especially within the international press as well. Like the, the militia women were massively, massively um, covered in the French and the British press and the American press as well. They were real, real, um, I suppose, icons of that early war. But yeah, very quickly, what we actually see is this shift away from that uh, militaristic and act as well as actively combatant framing. Uh, we get a in the in the middle. I think there's this shift towards this idea of the domestic and trying to reinforce the. La, the idea of the domestic the domestic woman at the front we see quite a lot of uh, images and of you know women who are in the coveralls and who have who are very much appearing as those glorif as those heroic figures but they are doing the washing they're doing the cooking they're kind of they're being portrayed as doing these um, traditionally female roles um, afterwards, I would say after about, um, yeah, really from October, November 1936 onwards, we get a real shift to looking at women as figures on the rear guard, uh, women in staying in the cities, women acting as in factories, is, uh, as in, the far, in agriculture, as organi organizing refugee aid. So I think there is a real shift away from the front. And that's, I think that is a real, there's a push towards portraying women within that mold, as opposed to the earlier um, militia women mold. So on the nationalist side, I know you mentioned that they were not the biggest fans of what was happening. They were more uh, traditional in their views of gender roles. So what did they have to say about these women who went to the front? How were they portrayed um, within the nationalist areas? Yeah, so as I said earlier, uh, overwhelmingly negative. 
Um, uh, I don't know if you've read anything by Laura Schoberg or Karen Gentry, but they um, have this categorization of how uh, women's militancy is portrayed and they divide it up into uh, mother monster whore. And within the nationalist press, it's very much leaning on the side of monstrous, um, which often evokes these women as unfeminine, as having given up their femininity in order to fight, uh, very much placed in opposition to the idealized uh, Catholic womanhood, which obviously they prioritized. Um, and very much, yeah, this very monstrous figure who is, you know, bloodthirsty, who's worse than the men, who is out and who's targeting churches, targeting nuns, who's really acting in opposition to the nationalist ideal of womanhood. Um, and then the other side of it is that they are very much sexualized and there's heavy, heavy rumors going on of prostitution. Uh, there's actually one story which was repeated a lot within the nationalist press, which saw them uh, condemned for their, uh, how they approached marriage and their, the way that they desanctified it. And it was a militia, a militia man asked a militia woman to marry him. And she said, no. And he said, oh, come on, we'll get three days of honeymoon. We'll go to Madrid. It'll be great. And she's like, okay, cool. We'll get divorced afterwards, though. And he's like, yes, of course. What, we, what do you think I am? And I think, yeah, it's this, it is very much playing it up for humor, but it is this real idea of how they saw this, how they saw Verhoeven womanhood as deviant and as this very, uh, I suppose abject is quite a good way to describe it. It's very, it's seen as this very abject in a very abject way. Um, yeah, it's, and obviously a lot of that nationalist press then lay the bedrock for later persecution and repression of Republican women and, you know, both during the war and after the war. So uh, on the propaganda side for the nationalists, did the, how they were portraying these women change over time like as these women are pulled away from the front uh sort of on the republican side do they disappear from nationalists uh sort of uh press and things or does it stick around for the whole thing yeah it actually sticks around much more than in the republican side uh because i suppose it's an easy target uh but yeah no it definitely does stay around a lot longer i think uh, the story I just said about the militia women and the marriage, I think that was reproduced in, I, want, I think, about three different uh, newspapers. And that was, I think, from 1936 and 1938. So, yeah, there was this actual consistency in yeah, demonizing the Republican woman even after she had left the front. And so, so you mentioned how sort of how they were portrayed laid the groundwork for later actions. So how were these women treated or how were, I guess, Republican women in general who were probably getting lumped in, even if they didn't participate in the fighting. So how did this, these portrayals affect how women were treated when nationalists took over areas or after the war was over? 
Yeah, so there was this, yeah, real demonization of the Republican women and also women who were associated to Republican men. Um, they were imprisoned, they were often subject to gendered violence, often this very public gendered violence, which was taking place out in the streets, um, head shaving, being forced in death castor oil, these rituals of public humiliation. Many women were executed unlawfully, you know, buried in mass graves. Uh, other women, there was, yeah, there was, you know, obviously systematic rape. I also know that there was a lot of women whose children were taken from them and who were then, whose children were then raised within either orphanages or within nationalist families with the idea of taking away the and dismantling the Republican family. But yeah, there was just, it really, de these portrayals and these, uh, you know, this, like, it, within propaganda and within the press really dehumanized them and that, and portrayed them as the other as a threat to this, you know, the Catholic way of life within Spain, to Spanish tradition, and that really then, yeah, set a precedence for how these women could be treated and how they, you know, were very brutally um, repressed, how, they're, how they were, you know, attacked. And obviously then we have the issue that they don't have the space to speak about their experiences they are you know they are their experiences are neglected they can't seek they can't seek any retribution yeah it's yeah it really i think did lay the bedrock for this um obviously during the franco dictatorship you know these women were treated very poorly how how do we know about their experiences like are are these interviews with survivors after the Franco dictatorship? Is it uh, people who maybe left the country or maybe a combination? Yeah, uh, so there is definitely a combination of both those factors. Uh, we know quite a lot from women who went into exile. Um, I mentioned Mika Ishibede earlier. Uh, she went into exile in France, I believe, and thereafter she wrote a book about her experiences. The other aspect is actually work done by oral historians. Um, I know that there was a lot of work done by Tomaso Cueva who worked on women's experiences of prison and that kind of collating the, their prison stories. Um, I know that Shirley Mangini, Gina Harmon are both uh, more recent examples of oral history. But yeah, a lot of it was collected during the latter, you know, the later stages and, af and after the Franco dictatorship. Um, I suppose, uh, yeah, after that initial period of very brutal repression. But yeah, there was, um, there was and there continues to be this effort to, I suppose, make visible and to, you know, discuss publicly, this happened, these experiences, these women are telling their stories, they're telling their experiences, and we need to listen to them. So yeah, I think that that's kind of been a concentrated effort since, yeah, the later stages of, Frank, of the Franco dictatorship, but most predominantly afterwards.
Uh, thank you for joining me here today for this interview. It's been uh, very great to, to hear this information. Thank you for having me. It's been really great to talk about it. Thank you.